Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, Trump and his powerful friends. What is behind his relationships with the likes of Putin, Kim, Xi, and Erdogan? The legendary journalist Bob Woodward on what he learned while reporting his new bestseller, Rage. Then, peace in the Middle East. On Tuesday, the White House hosted Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain for a peace deal signing. Is this the shape of the new Middle East? And what happens to the Palestinians? We have a voice from the region. And America's West Coast is on fire in a way it has never been before. People are fleeing. Is this the beginning of climate migration? And just how will climate change affect where people live in America and around the world? But first, here's my take. What explains why some countries handled the COVID-19 pandemic well and others did poorly? It's a complicated question, but my interview last week with Taiwan's former vice president got me thinking. If we look at the place that has arguably had the greatest success, the answer is failure. Taiwan gets the gold medal for its coronavirus strategy. It had close ties with mainland China, where the disease originated, receiving almost 3 million visitors from there in a typical year. It is a densely populated land, and Taipei, the capital city, has crowded public transit. And yet, with a population of nearly 24 million people, Taiwan has had just seven deaths. New York State, with a smaller population, has had 33,000. Taiwan's greatest asset turns out to be its failed response to an earlier pandemic in 2003, SARS, which taught it many important lessons. SARS was a respiratory virus, less contagious than COVID-19, but more deadly. SARS also came out of China, where authorities bungled the initial response and withheld information from the outside world. The Taiwanese were caught unprepared and made several mistakes. But in the aftermath, they totally overhauled their pandemic preparedness procedures. They ensured they had adequate supplies of equipment on hand. They made plans to act early, smartly, and aggressively. Many Asia-Pacific countries have succeeded against COVID-19. South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, New Zealand, Australia. All were hit by SARS or witnessed its economic damage. And they learned from the experience. The only non-Asian country with the SARS outbreak was Canada. And it too changed its procedures after 2003 and took precautions. Even China learned a great deal from its disastrous SARS response. And despite early stumbles this time, Beijing has managed to crush COVID-19 so completely that the disease has virtually disappeared from the country where it began. 
SARS doesn't explain the success of every country that has handled COVID-19 well, but it reveals an important aspect of the story. Consider, on the other hand, countries that have handled COVID-19 badly. Anthropologist Martha Lincoln, writing in Nature, points out that several of these countries tend to think of themselves as exceptional in some way. She notes that the United States, Britain, Brazil, and Chile all have strong national narratives that see themselves as separate, distinct, and better than others. The United States is notorious for this attitude, but that is, after all, also the motivation behind Britain's desire to quit the European Union. Brazil, meanwhile, believes it enjoys good fortune because, as their saying goes, God is Brazilian. Chile is smug about being the region's economic superstar. That sense of being special makes a country unlikely to adopt the standard attitude of any business when confronting a challenge, to look around for best practices. Bill Gates recently wrote that he has always tackled every big new problem the same way, by starting off with two questions. Who has dealt with this problem well, and what can we learn from them? He suggests we apply the same philosophy to the pandemic. And yet, America is remarkably uninterested in how other countries approach similar challenges. Plenty of advanced countries have healthcare systems that deliver better results than America's at much lower cost. Most have a fraction of our homicide rates. They often have better infrastructure, and their elections aren't dominated by money. Yet not only do we not learn from them, we barely bother to look. In an essay in Foreign Affairs, Jeremy Kanondike argues, American exceptionalism, the notion that the United States is unique among nations and that the American way is invariably the best, has blinded the country's leaders and many of its citizens to potentially life-saving lessons from other countries. He quotes the eminent U.S. historian Eric Foner, who once explained that American exceptionalism goes along with hubris and close-mindedness and ignorance about the rest of the world. Since the United States is so exceptional, there is no point in learning about other societies. Kanandike concludes, that mentality is now costing American lives. I fear he may be right. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a lawyer and a jurist for the ages. She spent her career fighting for women first and foremost, for their right to control their own bodies, their own finances, and their own careers. Her death Friday sent the American left into mourning, knowing that they had lost a tireless fighter for their cause and fearing they might lose her seat on the Supreme Court as well. My first guest today is Bob Woodward, made famous by his work on Watergate, He's perhaps the preeminent reporter on Washington power and politics. We are lucky to have him with us to talk about Justice Ginsburg and the ugly political battles to come, but also his new best-selling book, Rage. Bob, welcome. I wanted to ask you first for your Thank reflections you. on uh, Justice Ginsburg. It strikes me as fascinating how iconic uh, she became. She was not the first female Supreme Court justice. That was Sandra Day O'Connor. She's the second, but in a sense, she seems to represent the first. She's the feminist icon for the Supreme Court or something like that. What do you think? 
Well, I, I knew her a little bit, and 40 years ago I did a book on the Supreme Court. And what, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did is she talked about basic principles, equality, freedom. It's the old Earl Warren, who was Chief Justice uh, for before Berger and did all of the civil rights cases. And uh, Earl, Earl Warren would always talk about fundamental fairness. What Ruth Bader Ginsburg did is she said, oh, let's, let's be logical, let's be fair, use kind of simple American principles of freedom and equality, and let's apply them to women. And so it, it was simple, direct, uh, brilliant, and uh, had a giant impact because she had that un basic understanding, uh, I, I call it a moral voice. She really, uh, I, having done reporting in Washington for almost 15 years, 50, I'm sorry, 50, uh, that uh, one of the things you uh, learn is that somebody can come and seize an issue, but it's generally simple and it's moral. Uh, it, morality in a broad sense, I, I think you would agree with this, is, is bipartisan. It's not Democrats, it's not Republicans, it's not independents. And so she became a moral voice and uh, stuck to very simple principles, quite frankly. I remember reading uh, your book, uh, Bob, that you mentioned 40 years ago, The Brethren. Uh, it was about the Supreme Court then. I wonder when you think back to that book and to, to the, the court and, you know, the kind of politics surrounding the court, it feels like you were writing about a different country. It, it was so much more genteel, so much more, uh, there was a degree of bipartisanship. The court, uh, you know, it, it did not, I mean, right now you, it seems so polarized and you see this with the battle, the upcoming battle to replace uh, Justice Ginsburg. Well, it, 40 years ago, it could get pretty nasty, and there were lots of elbows thrown around. But you're right. Uh, the conclusion uh, about the Burger Court was that the center is in control. Center justices like Lewis Powell, uh, Potter Stewart, Wizard White, and the left of uh, Douglas and Thurgood Marshall actually did not control and the right of Berger and uh, and Blackman did not control. So now we have a Supreme Court, as you say, is astonishingly, almost embarrassingly polarized. And uh, we, we see it now as we come into the last days of the election and there's going to be a brutal, brutal battle over the nominee that Trump is going to put forward. Uh, but just think about it. The two leading candidates that Trump may appoint are age 52, age 48. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was only on the court for 13 years, but she died at age 87. So we could have a justice that Trump appoints if he gets her through 
who would be on the Supreme Court for 35 years? Think of that. And what do you think uh, the politics of, get, of getting that nomination through are? The, the Republican Party has having established a precedent with the, uh, Mitch McConnell saying we will not fill a, uh, a court seat a, a year before the, uh, the election. Uh, with the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, saying that, saying unequivocally, this is a precedent, keep the tape, you can play it, uh, reversing themselves. Will the Republican Party pay any price, you think, for, you know, essentially reversing itself within a matter of four years? Actually, I think uh, if the Republican Party gets uh, Trump's justice through and uh, that woman, because Trump said he's going to appoint a woman, uh, will really help the uh, Trump campaign in Trump uh, in, in, in a very profound way uh, help the Republican Party. I mean, think about the Trump supporters, people who are evangelical. Uh, the whole uh, issue of abortion uh, is front and center, and uh, if he gets one of these justices appointed uh, who is very conservative, very anti-abortion, you kind of solidify the conservative base there. Uh, look, what Trump is doing, what Mitch McConnell is doing, I'm going to release some transcripts and uh, audios later today that will show uh, Trump talking about that relationship and how important moving uh, the Supreme Court and uh, the judges. The you know, Trump will have appointed 300 judges. I mean, think about that. That remakes the federal judiciary. If he gets another appointment here, it will be uh, the third justice that he's put on the court. Uh, a you know, a, a thunderclap if you look at it in terms of, of this country. Now, yes, it's true the Republicans have uh, reversed their position, but it's still Mitch McConnell having a Republican majority that can do this. It's majority rules. A lot of it seems unfair. P uh, they're accused of hypocrisy, but you can, uh, when you have the power, and he has the power, and there, there's such an interesting history in this. If you'll bear with me, go back to 2013. It was Harry Reid, Democratic Majority Leader, who lifted the filibuster rule on judicial appointments, so it could be done just with a majority, and uh, that's what McConnell is going to use uh, that new rule, and uh, you know we'll 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 see. But Trump is going to, uh, I suspect, uh, knowing him, getting to know him very well, he's go he's going to push. He's going to uh, McConnell's going to push. They are an alliance on this. Uh, there will be a lot of screaming, a lot of. Uh, oh my God, how can they do this? This seems unfair, it's inconsistent. Uh, but often the exer exercise of power is inconsistent. 
Bob, stay with us. I want to talk about your new bestseller, sure. Rage, which explores many issues, Trump's friendships with Putin, Xi, but a lot more. We'll be back. I'm now back with Bob Woodward, and we're going to talk about his terrific book, Rage. But Bob, being a great reporter, told me in the break that he wanted to make sure people knew uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in fact, served in the court 27 years. Um, so he stands corrected on that. Um, let me ask you, Bob. Um, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> that's right. I was that's wrong. Right. Oh, I said no, no, 13 no, years. She was there for she was there for 27 years. Uh, Bill Clinton appointed her. Correct. In 1993. Um, let me ask you about the book. Um, one of the things that I was struck by in the book is Trump gives you 17 on-the-record interviews. He calls you late at night. Um, he, he seemed, you know, to have this desire to, to unburden himself, to show off to you. How did you read? You've had so many people talk to you. This struck me as almost uh, unique in his, you know, in this, this sort of energy with which he was calling you repeatedly. Well, I, I, he knew I wasn't going to put words in his mouth. I would let him have his say. I think almost 20 percent of the book is quoting him. Uh, Trump said the, uh, just a couple of days ago, he said some great things in this book, he said. Uh, that's because I let him put his case forward on all of these issues. I promised to do that. I went into the Oval Office, the first interview, December 5th, plunked down my Olympus tape recorder and said, this is all on the record uh, for a book that will come out in September and October. That was my demarcation line. Uh, and so he, he would call, but I would call him and he would come on the phone or he would call me back later. Uh, and he said repeatedly he worried that it was not going to be a book he liked. I said, I'm just going to uh, deal with the facts and I'm going to uh, dig into all of these issues. Uh, Fareed, an extraordinary opportunity for a reporter, book author, because I could prepare questions. I could think about what was going on. Uh, in May, when George Floyd was killed and there uh, erupted uh, a very significant movement uh, for racial justice, Black Lives Matter, I was able to talk to Trump directly about that, so about the economy, about the virus, and uh, uh, you look you, through you it and you see... Uh, Go ahead. You talked to him specifically so, about his his fascination with uh, dictators, and he admits it to you in a way which I've never seen him before. He says, "The meaner they are, the tougher they are, the better I seem to get on with uh, with them." What do you think that's about? And it's the and and the good ones I don't uh, get along with. Well, I think it's true, and uh, you know better than anyone, Fareed, that the president has total control on foreign relations and he is our face to the world under the constitution he has that power and practice he and his secretary of state in this case uh, mike pompeo and they've picked their friends putin uh, the mbs the crown prince in saudi arabia kim jong-un and 
I mean, think about it right now. I was thinking this morning, suppose Joe Biden is the Democratic presidential nominee, wants to go abroad now. He, he, he could do it. Uh, presidential nominees have done it, but, he, you know, it's, he'll, he'll get uh, pushed around by Trump. Hey, look, there's only one president. There's only one president who does this. So uh, you know it is an extraordinary power, and Trump is exercising it and defining the United States to the world based on what, how he looks at it and how he picks, it, uh, picks these strong authoritarian uh, leaders. It, let it's me ask you, let me ask you. And you're, sure. I, I've, I've got a little time and I have, to get, I have to ask you this, which is in this book, after 50 years of reporting, you say something you don't say in any of your other books. You say Donald Trump is the wrong man for the job. Why did you decide to make that yeah. judgment about this president? Uh, it is a conclusion based on overwhelming evidence. I spent four and a half years looking at Trump. Uh, you see how he operates, the, the, the failure to have a plan, the, the failure to have a strategy to operate on impulse. There, there is no organization. Uh, he, his cruel words toward people who served in senior cabinet positions from uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to Secretary of uh, State uh, Tillerson to, I asked Trump about General Mattis, the, uh, the Defense Secretary, and I said, what do you think of him? Oh, he's just a PR guy. Well, whether you like Mattis or don't, uh, and you read what he did as uh, Secretary of Defense. He's not a PR guy. He's certainly the most serious military person we have had uh, in the Secretary of Defense position for a long time. So it is, uh, Trump has obliterated the notion of some sort of organization, some sort of management. In the first book I did on Trump called Fear, I said there is a nervous breakdown of the executive branch. This is just an extension of that. And uh, if you go through the book, I think the, the most devout Trump supporter could read through this book and say, well, yeah, there's some things I like, but there are big questions about what Trump is doing uh, to this country and uh, our value system. And, and, and uh, we got we to got, we leave it at that. Uh, Bob, okay. thank you. Uh, as always, uh, unbelievable you. reporting. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure and honor. Thank you. Next on GPS, a new piece in the Middle East when we come back. On Tuesday at the White House, the UAE and Bahrain normalized relations with Israel. President Trump said the event would change the course of history. Will it? Joining me now is Mina Al-Oraibi. She is the editor-in-chief of The National, a newspaper based in the UAE. Mina, welcome. Let me ask you um, the really... 
the question I, I hear being talked about and I read being talked about in the Arab world is, have the UAE and Bahrain sold out the Palestinians? In other words, wasn't this meant to be about providing the millions of Palestinians uh, who live in the occupied territories with some kind of political rights, with a state? That has been the reason Arab countries have not recognized Israel for decades and decades, and that the UAE and Bahrain did it without any progress on the Palestinian issue. Um, how, what do you think uh, the, the, the feeling is in the UAE about that? Uh, Ferry, thank you for having me on. I mean, first of all, absolutely the Palestinians deserve to have their own state. And it's an issue that globally is recognized. International law uh, says that the settlements um, in occupied territories are illegal. Nothing that the UAE and Bahrain, for that matter, did changes that. And the Emiratis are very clear. And Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, the UAE foreign minister, in his speech at the White House during the signing ceremony, made that very point and said, we support the Palestinians' right for a state. The issue is that nothing has moved in the right direction for the Palestinians for decades. They signed the Oslo Accords. Over a quarter of a century has passed since any Arab country has signed any sort of agreement or come to any agreement with the Israelis. On the contrary, the Palestinians' plight has only gotten worse. So the question is, does this actually help the situation in the Middle East or not? And what the Emiratis have been clear about is that for them, first of all, a very important move from the Israelis was to halt the annexation of Palestinian lands. In May and June of this year, here in the region, we were all very concerned that the Israeli prime minister would go ahead with his decision to annex Palestinian lands, annex the Jordan Valley, which would have been terrible for the Palestinians, but also for the Jordanians. But now, in behind sense, the scenes, but, but in, that, in that case, Bibi Netanyahu seems to have outplayed the UAE. He threatened something which he never did and returned for not doing something that he never did. He got a major concession from the UAE. I mean, that, that, so, doesn't, that doesn't reflect well on the UAE's leadership. Well, not really, because he didn't do it because there was back channel talks happening. I mean, the UAE ambassador to the U.S., Yusuf Al-Ateba, publicly came out in June and said that any steps towards normalization would be halted if annexation went ahead. So it was very clear from the Emiratis side that whatever the Gulf countries were thinking would be over if annexation went ahead. So I think we have to see a sequencing here. The second element I think is important is that for the Palestinians, they still have to find a way to get their state. And it's something that not only the UAE, but of course, all the Arab countries still stick to the Arab Peace Initiative. That was in 2002. It's been 18 years. And it's a real issue with the international community, actually, and the region, the fact that nothing has happened on the Arab Peace Initiative side. But, where but, the Israelis it, has, were but given it hasn't a very happened clear... because Israel hasn't accepted it. And why would Israel accept it? Why would Israel accept it since the, the, the prize in the, in the Arab Peace Initiative was recognition of Israel, and the, and the UAE has provided the prize without Israel recognizing a Palestinian state. So if they're getting the, the rewards without, without making the compromise, why would they make the compromise? Yeah, I mean, look, again, don't forget, API is 57 countries, so it's more than one or two countries. And as far as the Emiratis are concerned and what they've been saying here and what we're hearing from officials here is that for them, this was a strategic decision for them bilaterally with Israel, but also looking at the Middle East and looking at ways, how can we change 
the stagnation that's happened. We've not seen any positive developments towards peace or even allowing the Palestinians a sense of changing the dynamics that we've had on the ground. The annexation was a real threat. That, for the time being, is off the table. But more importantly, it's looking at how can the region find ways to you know, come got, up with... I'm, I'm so sorry we're, we are out of time. Um, we will have you on bef- again, as we have in the past. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming on. Stay with us. We will be back in a moment. America's West Coast is on fire on an unprecedented scale. There are around 80 active large fires and more than 5 million acres have burned so far. Australia recently had its worst fire season on record with 15,000 fires over almost 30 million acres. Scientists say the higher temperatures created by climate change are fuel for these fires. Climate change is altering our world and it won't just reshape how we live, but where we live. My next guest has had two big cover stories on the subject in the New York Times Magazine, one in July on global migration caused by climate, one in today's paper about America's share of the problem. Abraham Lustgarten is a senior reporter at ProPublica who does climate-related investigations. He joins us from the Bay Area. Abraham, you mentioned that scholars have figured out that human beings over the last thousands of years have tended to live in a fairly narrow band of the planet, the part that's sort of habitable, but that this is changing. Um, People are going to be stuck in places that are inhabitable. How big is the scale? Describe to us the the, the kind of change that's coming. Yeah, this is based off of research that was published in the Proceedings in National Academy of Sciences last year, and it essentially... Uh, projects that about a third of the planet's population will soon live outside of this uh, this ideal band of temperature and precipitation that has proved ideal for humans for the last uh, 6,000 years. So uh, over the next you know 50 years from now, we'll see about a third of the planet's population uh, pushed outside of that zone or having to cope with living uh, in, a, in a starkly different environment. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of people being pushed out. Yeah, that's right. So presently, about a one percent of the planet's population lives in this, uh, you know, relatively uninhabitable part of the planet, and by twenty seventy, that will approach nineteen or twenty percent of the po- planet's population. So two to three billion people will be uh, confronted with uh, rapid changes in their climate. And so, when you think about that, you people being forced to move uh, because it just gets too hot, too dry. Um, you focus on. Uh, the areas close to the United States, uh, Central America, Mexico. Explain the dynamic and what do you think could happen? Because you kind of have two scenarios, one where they manage to get into the United States and two where there is a real hard shutdown of the U.S. borders. Yeah, that's right. So we looked at um, movement of uh, people out of Central America and we tried to model uh, how their migration might progress. So the more the climate warms, generally, the more people will be displaced and and begin moving towards the United States, Uh, maybe somewhere on the scale of 30 million people influenced by climate change, 5 million people. Uh, moving specifically because of climate factors. Um, But almost more interesting, uh, we found that if we, for example, close borders, uh, stop investing in foreign aid, 
uh, take a less globalized and less economically integrated approach, then uh, there might be less migration, but uh, population booms and poverty increases in those host countries. Uh, places like Guatemala, El Salvador might see more rapid urbanization, um, deepening uh, discord that goes with uh, increasing poverty in, in their biggest cities. So in your second article, you point out to Americans who might think this is all happening in foreign countries and we don't need to worry about it, that that's actually not true. We have, we have some of the same pressures uh, in the United States as well. Explain how. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, the United States is not immune uh, to climate change. We might not see the most dramatic changes that we would see in, say, North Africa. Um, but uh, climate change will have a, a, a rapid and, and really deep effect on, on our lives here in the United States. And so we, we looked at the best climate data that's available and we tried to map that data. And it, it portrays a picture of, you know, the walls closing in on the United States. We have fires in the West and intense heat coming from the South and sea level rise approaching on the coasts and failing crops in the Midwest. And you start to see that there's there's not too many places left untouched. And it's very difficult to predict exactly how many people would move in response to that. But, uh, you know, our numbers suggest that it could be upwards of half the population in the United States. One of the most disturbing points you make in the in the piece is that in some ways, public policy has encouraged uh, some of the, the, this, this kind of more dangerous living. Explain how. Yeah, so, you know, in the rest of the world, there's a quite a logical response of, uh, you know, impoverished people moving uh, generally northward, uh, but at least away from, you know, the, the equator and the hot zones. Uh, the United States has long had policies and incentives in place that have more or less encouraged us to do the opposite. So, you know, Americans move towards the coasts, we build on beaches, we um, move to Arizona in search of sunny climates where there's not a lot of water. And these movements have been, you know, encouraged by policies ranging from the easy and cheap availability of insurance to farm subsidies that encourage farmers to plant the wrong crops in the wrong places uh, and things like subsidized water in Arizona from the Colorado River, for example. So there's a whole host of kind of economic factors that have, uh, you know, supported bad decision making. And part of we look part of what, uh, you know, I looked at is how that's beginning to shift. It, it seems like we need a kind of almost to rethink of the, the, the entire way we are or where we are living. Uh, do you see any of that happening? I think it's just beginning to happen. And, uh, you know, part of it comes with this economic change, this realization, you know, in the in the financial sector, but also to, among the public that the costs of climate change are real uh, and that they might outweigh, you know, some of the benefits of the sort of subsidies that we're talking about. So as that happens, uh, you know, you'll see that economic support shift. And I think you'll see a behavioral shift in response to it. And it's not that everyone needs to flee these zones, but I think that there are places where, you know, we'll see that, uh, you know, just aren't practical to live. And maybe that means, you know, in the most rural or exposed wildland, uh, you know, wildfire interface areas or right on the coasts of places like North Carolina that are extremely vulnerable to sea level rise. But I, you know, what they call forced retreat, I think that's, um, that's going to be an increasing phenomenon in the United States. Abram, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Climate change is not the only major crisis we face, of course. We are also in the midst of a global pandemic. Why are we facing these crises and why do they seem to be accelerating? I say it is because we are living in a world in overdrive. I will explain what I mean when I come back. And now for the last look. 
The United States, accustomed to being on top, has found itself number one in the world for COVID-19 cases and deaths. Now some West Coast cities are hovering atop the charts for the worst air quality in the world. Last week, Portland's air was almost three times as unhealthy as notoriously polluted cities like New Delhi. The scenes of red skies out of America's West have an unreal quality to them, as if they come from a different planet. In a sense, they do. They are portents of the future. There are many proximate reasons for these forest fires. Fireworks, campfires, a stray spark. But there is one large cause that is blindingly clear. Human actions that have led to climate change. To put it simply, the world is getting hotter, and that means that forests get drier. And we can be sure of one thing. It's going to get worse. Temperatures continue to rise, drought conditions are worsening, and the combined effect of all these forces will multiply to create cascading crises in the years to come. Cascades in which small sparks cause great conflagrations are happening all around us. Think of COVID-19, which began with a viral speck that was lodged in a bat somewhere in China and is now a raging global pandemic. While viruses have been around forever, they mostly originate in animals, and when they have jumped to humans, remained largely local. But over the last couple of decades, many viruses that began in animals have switched hosts to infect humans and then gone global, causing widespread epidemics, SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and now the novel coronavirus. In a recent essay in the scientific journal Cell, the country's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and one of his colleagues, Dr. David Morin, speculate that we may have reached a tipping point that forecasts the inevitability of an acceleration of disease emergencies. In other words, get ready for more pandemics. The fundamental reason behind this acceleration, they argue, is human actions, the ever-increasing scope and pace of development. This is why I wrote my new book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, which has been excerpted in Time magazine this week, and I have drawn from that essay for this segment. Let me quote from lesson one of the book. We have created a world that is always in overdrive. People are living longer, producing and consuming more, inhabiting larger spaces, consuming more energy, and generating more waste and greenhouse gas emissions. Just one example, a 2019 UN report written by 145 experts drawn from 50 countries concluded that nature is declining globally at rates unprecedented in human history. It noted that 75% of all land has been severely altered by human actions, as has 66% of the world's ocean area. Ecosystems are collapsing and biodiversity is disappearing. We are tempting fate every day. The pandemic, for its part, can be thought of as nature's revenge. The way we live now is practically an invitation for animal viruses to infect humans. Why do diseases seem to be jumping from animals to humans at a faster pace in recent decades? Because in many parts of the world, people are living closer to wild animals. Developing countries are modernizing so quickly that they effectively inhabit several different centuries at the same time. And the people who live in these places are more mobile than ever before, quickly spreading information, goods, services, and disease. We have to recognize that the way we are living, eating, and consuming energy are all having an impact on the planet, and increasingly, it is fighting back. 
I explain the urgency of these kinds of problems and the solutions in my book, which you can pre-order by going online to your local bookstore or just visit cnn.com slash Fareed. Do it now so you are sure to get your copy. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week, and I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.